Hi, it's uh, Tuesday morning over here. I'm in the middle of a whole big lecture series I'm doing, so I'm just taking off a little bit of time to the podcast today. Uh, uh, I'm up to here, actually. I thought it'd be a six-part series, which I hope videos, which I hope will eventually be on my uh, YouTube site that my son put up. It's a, such a thing called Jewish History with Rabbi Katz, or something like that. If you Google it, you'll find it. And little by little, we're putting up all my old videos. Not, I'm not talking about the audios, I'm talking about the videos. And right now, I'm doing a video series in Baltimore on um, Jews and War. Uh, I'm actually live-streaming it some of the times or other, but that's only for people who wrote in to um, to my uh, Being of Jewish History website. Um, if you're interested at all, you have to go to the, my show website and then you'll look up the info there. Anyhow, uh, today's podcast is being sponsored by Rabbi Stephen Weil, who asked me to talk about what may be an ancestor of his, the Marie Weil, or Carmel And this is being uh, sponsored in memory of Werner Weil, Werner Weil, I should say. So obviously grandfather, Yeshua Misaka Levi, who, uh, I know Rabbi Wilde was originally from Buffalo, so the family must have moved in from Germany, I assume. And after living as cattle dealers, fee handlers, as they used to call it in his area, uh, in the same town in the lower Franconia for 300 years. Wow. So that's Yaki's, all right. That means that, uh, let me see, after 300 years, he had in the real Yaki's. They didn't move back from Poland. And he survived the Nazis. And then came to this country, obviously, and settled in upstate New York. I said before, I imagine in the Buffalo area, returning to the same business. And Rabbi Well tells me he was a generous supporter of most of Satoro, an incredible role model to his family, and to the Jewish community and the Gentile community in upstate New York. It's nice to hear, <laughs> isn't it sad? It's nice to hear of a firm Jew made a uh, Kiddush Hashem. It should be that, oh yeah, all religious Jews make a Kiddush Hashem. We're so used to the other way around. Oh, this guy made a Chil Hashem. Another one on the internet, this and the other. Uh, so we're sadly in a situation where if somebody can say, you know, my father, my grandfather, whoever it was, made a Kiddush Hashem in the non-Jewish community, you say, wow, that's unusual. Very, very impressive. But we do pay tribute to his memory. Um, as I said, he said, you know what, it, it, it was interesting if I would speak about famous Rabbi Wiles. And I'm happy to do so. Uh, I never did the Mariwal, who was in the 15th century, as you'll see in a second. Uh, the only thing I have to say is, having the same last name doesn't mean anything. What is it? Why, I know a lot of people named Wile. So do you. Uh, Baltimore, elsewhere. First of all, Weil is the name of a, a bunch of small German towns in South Germany, if you know that sort of thing. In the area of Franconia and Bavaria and the Swiss border and all that, there's vile this and vile that and vile that. And the historians have speculated, but it's just totally speculative, that the Marie Weil, who we'll talk about in a minute, comes from the Weil near the Neckar River. Which makes sense, because it's in the heart of Franconia. You know, I know these things don't mean anything to you, but, you know, it's the right geography. But Weil simply is old-fashioned German-Latin mixture of a villa, <laughs> you know? Guy lives in a villa. So wherever there was a large mansion or a small palace, if you wish, 
way back when, um, in medieval Germany, then we call it the vial. It's the vial on the Necker River, the vial on the Steintuch River, the vial on the Schoenbrook River, you know, the, whatever. So, it's the name of a town. So it's the same way I know a lot of people named Berlin. They're not related to each other. I know Berlin's in Baltimore, good friends of mine. I know Berlin's in New York. I know Berlin's elsewhere. Just because last name is Berlin doesn't mean anything. Or I know people in Warsaw or Par- Paris or Paris. I even heard of a shoal in, 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 uh, in Tina called Romer. My family came from Rome. You know what I'm saying? I know people named London. And, you know, people named Wilner, which is Vilner, Vilna, right? They're not related. They're simply, the name was given to them or adopted by them in connection with the town that either they came from or their ancestor came from or something like that. So while is a place, a small town, really small town in, uh, in South Germany. It's a bunch of small towns. So if, if the name of our hero is Rabbi Yaakov Weil, and he lived in the 15th century primarily, late 14th, 15th century, uh, he's a Jew in Ayaka, you know, as we would say today, uh, whose name is associated with the town. All these Yakis have such names, all of them. Uh, people named Hamburger, Bamberger, uh, Neuberger, uh, Rottenberg. These are all names of towns, you understand? Uh, Frankfurter, you name it. Right? Uh, Halbrun. These are what Jews did. They took their names and names of towns. Unless they're very Jewish and maybe their Kohanim name is Bikats or something like that. But, you know, generally speaking, people took names of towns. I'm just throwing this out by way of historical reality. When you see a rabbi or anybody else from long ago, usually they're connected, you know. I'll give an example. The note of Yehuzi Ezekiel is Landau. Landau's a small town in the same area, in Rhineland, you know. So way back when, somebody was from there. Now, having given that place name business, let's talk about this very interesting person. Because he may be related to Rabbi Stephen Weil, he may not. You know, uh, anything's possible. Uh, I'm speaking serious, not to be funny. And uh, in which case, it'd be a very distinguished ancestry indeed. Because <coughs> Marie Weil is somebody that most of us have heard the name back and forth. If you're in yeshiva and you study for smith, you see the Mariv, you know what I mean, in the Yerodeah. But uh, I don't think so well known at all, because here we're dealing with somebody who lived in very, well, every century is interesting, but he lived in very tough times. Uh, we're dealing with somebody who lived from around, you know, the day, nothing is known of these people for sure, we just generate approximate dates. So like... Let's say approximately, I would say 1385 to 50, 1455. That's the best I, excuse me, the best I come up with. Which would mean he died around the age of 70. Well, that's a life. Okay. Uh, late 1300s, early 1400s. Now I know most people are listening over here. You say 1500s, 1400, 1200. That doesn't mean anything to them. Of course not. Because you don't have the, the, the uh, historical uh, context. But let me put it this way. There were Jews in Germany. You heard about that. Once upon a time, there was a flourishing Jewish community in Germany, and you heard about that. And you had Bali Tosfos there, and uh, you know, the Mom Rottenberg, you know, famous Rishonim, let's put it that way. You heard of that. And that lasted, you know, into the late 1200s. Well, starting in the late 1200s, the Germans, I would say, got sick and tired of Jews being there. And so there begins a steady process from the late 1200s all through the 1300s and all through the 1400s in different places in Germany where anti-Semitic stuff breaks out. And in one place after another, 
there's a, a violent pogrom and they kill everybody, or they drown everybody, or they forcibly convert everybody, or they expel everybody. That's what happened. And so little by little, if we were on the computer, on the, you know, on the YouTube, and you could do one of these uh, videos that they show you, you'd see, you know, Germany full of Jewish thing, and then you see white, and then white, and then white, you know what I mean? To use American expression, you'd see all of a sudden the state of South Carolina go white, meaning the Jews are killed or kicked out of there. And then you see the state of Texas go white, and it means the Jews are kicked out of there. Then you see the state of Montana go white. And each one will be a different year. So South Carolina would be associated with the 1290s, and Texas would be associated with the 1310s, and the race Ohio would go white, now be associated with the 1340s. See what I'm saying? So only historians are into this nitty-gritty level of detail uh, and who are interested in pessimistic and negative history, because you're talking about Gezeros on Claudius Raw, in which whole communities uh, you know, were destroyed in one fashion or another, pursue this. Most people don't like to read, or read about the uh, sad part of Jewish history, although that's a big part of it. And therefore, Germany, which was a collection of states, like the United States, a bunch of states, Germany was a collection of states. It was called the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, each one, in each uh, area, there was some outbreak against the Jews, usually ending in the destruction of a local Jewish community of their or their expulsion, or something like that. And this is particularly true of the 1300s and the 1400s. I say Gaitas. That by the time you get to the year 1500, when you finish with the 1300s and 1400s, there are no Jews left in Germany, hardly. Right? I mean, there, there are a few. I always like to say 96% of the Jews were kicked out of Germany and went to Poland. This is exactly where most of the Jews of Polish Jewry came from. This is how it happened. So when I've spoken before here about the golden age of the Jews in Poland in the 1500s, which is true, they are children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Yekis who had to run away from Germany sometime or other during the 1300s, sometime or other during the 1400s and so forth. And in Poland it was okay, and Poland was one country over. But, if, but I'm talking today, my remarks are about Marie Wall, so we're talking about the Jews who remained in Germany, the Yekis. Although you can't call them Yekis because that's a 19th century term, which has to do with a certain degree of Germanization, of acculturation. One thinks of Samson Evil Herschel, people like that. Term Derek Heretz, term Mata, that kind of business. None of that existed, you know, 800 years ago, 700 years ago, 600 years ago. None of that existed. The Jews in Germany, although they were Germans in their way, and the Yiddish they spoke was a German Yiddish, and so forth, but they were like Hasidim, you know, saying they looked different, they talked different, uh, you know, they uh, they were noticeable. Well, some were, some weren't. That's our story. Uh, what happened? So it's a, it's an interesting time. The 1300s was a bummer. Besides the regular uh, destruction of Jewish communities that I just described, which took place periodically and steadily, all through the 1300s and all through the 1400s, the whole thing was, um, what should I say, intensified in the middle of the century, by the bubonic plague. Here we are in the, in, the, in the corona situation, right? Now, so we understand this. The, uh, it was a terrible plague that killed about three-quarters of Europe. Hear what I said? 75% of the population, something like that, uh, in horrible death ways, with these uh, uh, shin and stuff like that that broke out, of abuos that, that, that killed the body, you know, slowly and painfully. And nobody knew what to do anything about it because nobody heard of medicine. I think they say today the rats brought it, but nobody had any hava mean about that. 
And uh, one of the things that happened was, and this was a hostile for all of us, that uh, Jews were blamed. Now, traditionally, they say the Jews were blamed simply by pure riches and anti-Semitism. And that's totally possible. Um, it used to be a myth that the Jews were more clean than the Goyim, and therefore the Jews were less affected by the plague. And consequently, the Goyim got angry and thought, it's a Jewish plot, because we're dying and you're not. And since it's a Jewish plot, the Jews poisoned the wells and did all kinds of things like that. So let's kill the Jews in revenge. We know today, the modern historians know, it's not true. And you and I know it from the corona. Are we keeping social distancing and all that business in Lakewood, in Muncie, in B'nai Brock, and all these other places? We, we know from Jews don't do this. And if it's a bubonic plague in the 1300s, you're going to die, baby. And uh, lots of Jews died. So it wasn't true that it would hit the Christians and not the Jews. It hit both, right? Plus, it's not true, really, honestly speaking, that the Jews are cleaner than the Goyim. You go to the mikvah, <laughs> to make you cleaner. If you go into a from mikvah, maybe the opposite, right? If you, you know, if you wash your hands in the tilsi dime, that's not the same thing as washing with soap. You and I living today, especially, particularly right now in the pandemic, we're quite aware of these uh, hygiene health issues with the masks and the, and the constant washing of hands with good soap. They didn't do any of that stuff back in the 12, 13, 14 You know that. So the result was that a huge wave of violence hit the German Jews because they, nobody knew what to do about the plague, so the only thing they could do was kill the Jews. That's the mentality of the Germans in the 1300s, and uh, it was the mentality of the Germans in the 1930s and 40s. True? Right? No? So that's what they did. So I want you to hear what I'm about to say. As a result, in the middle of the 1300s, the Germans killed 75% of the Yakis. That's a big number. In this city, in this town, in this town, in that town, they killed three quarters of the Jews. That's an unbelievable holocaust by the standards of the 14th century. Now, the numbers aren't anywhere like in the 20th century because the Jews were a much smaller population. But that's not the point. If you go by the effect and percentage, it was an unbelievable blow. And the Jews, you know, were like hit over the head. Ain't bias, ashamed, mace, and so forth. It was a terrible time. Now, when you get, when that exhausted itself after a couple of years, and by the time you get to the 1360s, 1370s, all the rest of it, so, you know, the Holocaust was over. The Jews were still not liked. Um, the process, as I said before, of getting rid of Jews here, there, and the others continued, but not with the same violence. Okay, not exactly with the same violence. So at that time, I would say starting in the 1360s, 1370s, whatever was left of the sad 25% of German Jewry had to rebuild. You know, what choice do we have? Right? What are you going to do? Curse the old Germans? You're living there. Well, what are you going to do? And uh, if this is the sad reality of that time. And it was during this time that our hero grew up and lived. To be more exact... If you, the, the revival, if I can use that term, of the 25% who survived, the attempts to um, restore as much as possible normal Jewish life, uh, that sort of thing is associated with, um, with the Maril uh, and, the, and, and uh, who was a big rabbi, 
I was 20 years older than our hero. And so listen closely. The Maril lives from the 1360s to the 1420s, and his student, Mariwa, lives from the 1380s to the 1450s. So their lives overlap, but these are all the generations of Rabbanim, and the, the few rabbis actually knew how to learn, because as we'll see in a second, one of the results of the Holocaust that I just described was the, the rise, like bad mushrooms, of a bunch of people who were what we call B and C level rabbis, who some or other got positions in the community of one form or another of the 25% that were left and uh, didn't know that much, right? But they tried to cover it up through all kind of shtick. So the few Rabbanim actually knew how to learn uh, played a very important role or tried to. So we have, as I said before, uh, the famous person of Maharil, who, without going into a biography, was born in the 1360s and therefore und- and, and was the son of a rabbi in Mainz, and he had a quiet life. Uh, Mainz is on the Rhine River. Mainz happened to be a place where things were relatively not as bad. Small community, old community. The Maril's father was a rov, and the Maril succeeded his father when he was like 20 years old, something like that. And he was all of his life the rov. So here's a guy who had, by the standards of the times I'm speaking, a quiet life. And the Maril... Uh, made a yeshiva, and uh, this yeshiva flourished for a long time. So figure, here's a guy that's uh, born in 1365, I think. So by, thir- by 1385, I know the, d- the dates matter, I can't help it. He's born in 1365, by 1385 he's 20 years old. So for the next 40 years, approximately 42 years, he's a rov, you know, our basin, and Rosh Yeshiva makes a yeshiva of his own. So yeshiva flourished for 40 years, a high-level yeshiva. Now, what does the yeshiva mean when three-quarters of the population are destroyed? You just have to understand that the yeshiva is very small. Okay? If somebody had 10, 20 boys, it's amazing. Uh, I think the Maril was at 50 boys. 50 boys? That's like today, <laughs> part of it, you know? Uh, the numbers were smaller. So we talk about yeshivas, there's much smaller institutions than you would imagine today. <clears throat> Typically. So the Maril is uh, trying the best he can to, uh, you know, maintain a Jewish community in a town called Mines and run a yeshiva and teach Torah to Talmudim and hopefully train, for, you know, from some of them will emerge as something epic to be the big rabbis, Talmud come next generation. So you're going, talking about people going through Shas, going through post What does post mean? We're talking about the 1300s. This is before the Torah, this is before the Shulchan Aruch. Didn't exist. So what does the post You understand? The Mordechai had sort of come out, but Mordechai had been killed in the first wave of the pogroms in the late 1200s. So what does it mean? My friends, it means if you're Ashkenaz, you go back to the Ashkenazic minhug sources. You learn the Gemara, and then you learn uh, Halach Lamaisa. What does Halach Lamaisa mean? What is the minhug of what we do? See, because all Halach is minhug. Do you understand that? All Halach is minhug. Maybe you realize, maybe you don't realize that. If we have today... A difference of opinion on Hilchah Shabbos, they would say, between Rashi and Tosas, for example. Let's say Rashi holds one way, and Rashi holds, you're allowed to do this, and Tosas, you're not allowed to do this. Something like that. The Rashi says, you're allowed to do this, and the Ritva says, you're not allowed to do this. Although in Germany, in the 1300s, they never even heard of the Rashi and Ritva. These books were not around. So you had Ashkenazic sources, Machzer Vitri, Rashi and Tosas, uh, the Ravon, things like that. 
So the question then becomes like this. So what do you do, Lamaisa, on Shabbos? Do you follow Rashi, his halachic psaq, or do you follow the Tosfos? To use a modern example from today, you ask the question, what do you do in this and this particular Shiloh? Do you go like the Mishnah, or do you go like Darach HaShokhan? Now, whatever answer you give me, you're just making up. When I say making I'm not making fun, I'm speaking seriously. When I say making up, you decided that this is what we're going to do. You know, you might say, broadly speaking, in the 20th century, the yeshiva world decided, they're going to go like a Mishnah Bura. So that became the minute. It's not like they got together and said, we're going to do this. It's not like we passed some ruling. I say, okay, you know, it developed organically for whatever reason. There are historical reasons for it. For whatever reason, it became that you're going to follow the Mishnah Bura. You see? You know, with the tea bags or something like that. You're going to follow the Mishnah Bura. Or, alternatively, maybe some other communities said, no, we're going to follow the Archa Shulchan. So, Halacha is minhag. You get it? Halacha is minhag, meaning what do you what becomes the custom of which halachic opinion do you follow? So I'm using the word minhag here in a very interesting way. And the word minhag is uh, in all of its meanings is very, very important in Ashkenazic culture. Um and uh uh what do you call it? It's that's just how it goes in in those years. Now there are other sets of minhagim also in which might not come from the Gemara, or a Machlokas Rishonim, or something like that, and Minhagim developed for other reasons, because the Gemara doesn't tell you everything. You understand? The Gemara's not telling you everything. Here we have this business now, that they're opening shuls, or reopening shuls, reopening minions, and you run with this question, do you read all the parashas that you skipped? Do you don't read all the parashas that you skipped? It's not clear. And then the question comes like, so what's the minute? What do we do? You know, what do you do? And uh, this became the interesting life of the intellectual Jewish life such as existed of the 25% that survived the massacres of the middle 1300s. Now, so here's this Maril, and he has yeshiva for 40 years. And you know how it goes. Most guys in yeshiva are just like regular, and a few of them become really chashev. Our hero, Rabbi Yaakov Weil, who was born 20 years after Maril, so he's 20 years younger. So that means he's going to come to the yeshiva, I don't know, around 1400 or so, 1405, in those years. He uh, comes to the yeshiva and he's the star pupil. Right? He's the best Talmud of the Maril. Maril. So imagine a guy learning from the age of 15, 20, and he sits there a good number of years. I forget exactly, but he was like, you know, uh, he wasn't young when he left the yeshiva. Now, listen closely. The Maharil succeeded his father as the rabbi in months, and he, and he had no problems, apparently, with the Balabatim. So he stayed for the rest of his life like that. And um, I don't know, if I remember correctly, he didn't take a salary. He, he made money as a shatchan, I believe. But anyway, whatever the case is. Uh, now, hold on. So he had no challenges. This does, Therefore, it's not surprising that the Maril would be like a mellow character, right? What I mean when I say mellow, there are other Tommy to come in tent round. He didn't consider them a threat. And there was a a, a big uh, Rosh Hashiva type uh, who lived in Mainz who came there, and Maril had no issues with that. And in fact, he said, I guess, why don't you give a share in my yeshiva? So that's very uh, nice. And he's not afraid of stealing the boys away. This was Zalman Runkel. I know his name doesn't mean anything to you today. Uh, 
what do you know about great Rosh Hashivas of the 1300s, you know? But Zalman Runkel, and uh, he, if I can use near Israel terms, he was like the uh, Rabbi Kalevsky over there, or um, what should I say, you know, like David Lipschitz and YU, you know, that sort of thing. And um, these and these were two serious Talmud Chachamim, and may I say, in the era that I'm talking about, the Ashkenazi yeshivas, you know, had the two lines, two, two Siddharim, shall we say, Seder A and Seder B. Maybe they had more, but they had two Siddharim. One was for Pilpul, and one was for non-Pilpul. And Pilpul, I've talked about it before, and I don't want to get into it today because it'll take me too long to go into it again. You have to listen to the earlier podcast. But the Pilpa at that time was wild and crazy. Um, there was an, this is Mamash the era of the classic Ashkenazic Pilpa of the High Middle Ages. This is the period of the Augsburgers, the Nuremburgers, and the Regensburgers. So they had a certain type of lumdus, which is strange to us today, but was flourishing at that time. If you have, want to have the slightest inkling of what I'm talking about, either you have to listen to the old podcast, or else they just republished now, I think Feldheim, the Darche Agamara from Misa uh, Kampantan, uh, who is Spanish, but he describes that kind of style of learning. And as Nakudos, and it's a fancy edition, uh, that guy in Lakewood, the Swarm Chatter, told me about it, and I and I got it from the Eichlers in the Corona situation. That's one type of learning. and that, But that's wild and crazy learning, okay? And the other one isn't. The other one is, you learn the Gemara, and then Asukia After you finish the Asukia, and if you do your work right, you, you find the other sugyas like Kesev Nivchastav, and then afterwards you put it all together and you say, what is the Halach Lamaisa? Right? So, uh, in the Maril Zishib, had that, but he was the type that, what shall I say, gave the emphasis to the non-pilpal learning. Because he said like this, German jury is flat when it's back. 75% were killed. What's left over is not the Idis Shabana Chasim. The type of people who survive in different communities, usually rough, tough types. And therefore, the communities are full of people that um, the Balabatim running the show and the Rabbanim that are serving there, by and large, don't know much. You get it? And, uh, and that's a bummer. And that's going to be a churban. And a lot of wrong things are happening. And the Rabbanim are kissing up to the powerful Balabatim because they're afraid of them. The type of people who survived these pogroms were tough types. And therefore, they would tell the rabbi, if you don't do what we want, we'll beat you up, we'll kill you. I'm saying, you look in the Mariwal, you, you, you find such a, a cases. He has a shout from a guy, can I protest against me? They, they're, they're attacking me. They're threatening me goofing <laughs> They're threatening to, 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 to kill me, to beat me up, to beat up my family. You know, life was, was tough in the Jewish communities. Second of all, you know, when, when so many people were killed, so now comes, as I say before, the question of, do you read the old Cedra? Do you not read the old Cedra? Here we have Tisha of Shilas. We don't remember what we used to do. And there are different, you know, there, there are people say, as I remember, the minute used to be this. The others go, no, 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 the minute used to be that. And it was uh, Andra Musi, and it was a, a, a tremendous uh, chaos in terms of actual practice. And a lot of bad men hugged him, rose up, because people thought, that's what I think we used to do, and the other one said not. And life was just tough. So in this environment, what is needed more than anything else, right, is not Lamdanim. What is needed more than anything else is Poskim. You need a rough who knows what the din is. Therefore, the emphasis in the yeshiva of the Marel was which is why the Sefer Marel, which is all about the Minhagim, although he didn't write it, his student wrote it, is trying to give you detailed guidance of what to do through the year. 
You understand? And in other areas of Shulchan Aruch, as we would call today, what exactly do you do? And to find out and to recover what exactly you do is 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 was all important. So the emphasis wasn't on the lambdas, although there was plenty of that, but the emphasis among the best students was to be a posik and know how to paskil a which is why Rabbi Yaakov Weil emerges like the top student in this yeshiva and uh, was there, I would say, till like the age of late 20s, okay? And in, and uh, and the, him and the Rebbe loved each other, and um, in his late twenties, he 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 uh, he gets married to a girl in Nuremberg. So we go from Mainz to Nuremberg. That's from the Rhineland to the Bavaria. And um, I know Nuremberg doesn't mean much to you, but you know, but uh, Nuremberg is is a famous place of a long-standing yeshiva which eventually the Jews later on were kicked out of Nuremberg as they were from everywhere else and had to go to Firth. So there's a lot of people here in Baltimore who originally go, come from Firth, like Rabbi Heinemann and others. It's really in Nuremberg, way back when. So when he goes to Nuremberg, uh, the Maril gives him a big smicha, like you'd say to the Yerio Yon Yon, you know, and, and stuff like that. And he even writes in the smicha, you have the right to, to, to be a Rav wherever you are and to open a yeshiva wherever you go. And he comes to Nuremberg, there already is a yeshiva. <laughs> there already is a yeshiva. So, if he was the regular type, and he just got married to a rich girl, and so everything ought to be, uh, you know, uh, okay. Uh, there was a Zalman Katz, was the, uh, the Rav and the Rashiva there. So, not that it means anything to you. So, he comes to Nuremberg, the situation is ripe for a, a nice machlokis. You know, the old rabbi, and now the young new whippersnapper, who's hot stuff. But that's not what he saw with the Maril and Zalmarunkel. He saw his You know, even though he was totally capable of, because he was a young genius, you know, of being a local Rosh Hashiva and being a Posik and all the rest of it. And there was nobody who was officially the Rav in Nuremberg. So, because um, that's how it worked at that time. So he could have said, I'm going into business for myself. Uh, uh, the more you know, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, and the more Torah that's uh, taught, the better it is. Which would have led to a nice big machlokes, which you had many times in Nuremberg and all the other cities. And uh, Nuremberg yeshiva had gone down a generation earlier because these kind of machlokes. And if you're interested in this subject, there are three fat volumes by Rabbi Shlomo Hamburger, who's Mister Yeki, uh, who's uh, written the three fat volumes on the history of the yeshiva in Nuremberg or the yeshiva in Firth, which is what it eventually became. Three volumes, right, just on this yeshiva. Now, uh, but that's not what the Riyakawal did. When he came there, he said like this, I don't need uh, to start a machlokas, and I will not offer yeshiva, I'll just sit in the town and learn. And the local rabbi couldn't believe his good luck. And the truth of the matter is, if you're not political, then welcome aboard. And so he ended up, Coming friends and talking and learning. And Lamaisa, what happened was the Ryakawal ended up just giving Shurim with the full approval of the other guy uh, in, 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 in Nuremberg. And everything was fine. You understand? Everything was fine. So the result was for about 12 years, he was married and uh, he was what you call a private Talmud Chacham. And he was a Magid Shir, as you'd say. And so Lamaisa, he's a member of the Anahola, Lamaisa. But b'shalma b'shalva, nothing, uh, you know, I'll tell you again, like I mentioned at the beginning today, 
by Rabbi Stephen Wall's grandfather. Uh, uh, it's sad that you have to say like this. Two kachamim came into a town and they got along. It should be that's the typical, but it didn't work like that. So it's unusual. Now, 12 years later, he got a offer as a stellar to go to Augsburg. The Augsburg is one of the places that have big yeshiva to be the rub there. So he moved there. That makes sense. And uh, I'll tell you again, the Augsburg um, was one of the uh, Iker centers of a story. There were three yeshivas in Regensburg, Nuremberg, and Augsburg. Regensburg, Augsburg, and Nuremberg, I think, yeah. And they each one had a different type of kasha. They used to use it as their pilpal vehicle. I don't want to go into it now. Uh, so he's now head of one of those yeshivas. And he was there uh, for about, again, uh, 12, 15 years, something like that. 10 years, whatever. And this is the 1430s. Uh, at this time, the Jews were really having tough times because every time a new emperor came along, you know, he said, I'll give the Jews who were left the 25% left protection, but I want a lot of money for it. And it's known, if it means anything, to you, it doesn't mean anything to you, that the new emperor Zygismund, you know, when he got crowned, he called all the Jewish representatives to Basel. Ah, forget it. Anyway... Um, so let me put it this way now in Nuremberg and especially now he's the rub of Augsburg he starts getting Shilas because the Maharil died uh, the year I guess he came to Augsburg uh, to Nuremberg I'm sorry I got that wrong he died the year he came to Augsburg so when the Maharil was gone who do you send all your Shilas to so from all over Germany for the rest of his life for the next 25 years whatever something like that 30 years he became if I, I'll use this term, he became the Ramosha Feinstein. He's the one everybody sent the shells to. Now, I'm serious. Now, he wasn't the only big rabbi in Germany, but there weren't many. I'm talking about Chachib. His contemporary was the uh, Trumas Adeshen in Austria, and Marie Brunner, who was a student of Ryakowal. You know, he had a few guys that were biggies, but if you read their chuvas, they're always writing to him. So he was, like when I was young, Ramosha Feinstein. He's the final authority. And it's just very interesting. Uh, now, what happened was they got a better job offer. And uh, he got out of Augsburg and went to Erf Erfurt. Now, again, I know you don't know, unless you look it up on the map, where these places are. These are all in south and central Germany. That's what they are. So all of his life he's living in this Yekshin environment. And that's where he kind of stayed. And, uh, the, and again, he set up a yeshiva over there. And uh, this is where he was, I would say, the last uh, 20 years, a little bit less, of his life. Okay? So that's who was. A guy who was a, a Talmud. You see, he had a, in that regard, what we would call today, so to speak, a, a normal life. Now, uh, and then he died. Now, the significance is the Shalos and Shubas. Uh You can tell, if you read them, that the whole Ashkenazi world looked at him as the final authority. And therefore, uh, he uh, published a lot of these uh, chubas, and they're fascinating. This is the historians are going crazy over my Rewal in terms of the historical realia that you find in his chubas, which are written, as they say before, in the 1420s, 1430s, 40s, and, and 50s. He, and he seems to have died without going into historical detail, around 1455 or so, the way you see references to him in other books. So, you know, that's how he lived. And by the way, a year or two after he died, you know, the Jews were kicked out of Erfurt, so again, he missed that one. Uh, so here you have 
the Talmud Muvak of the Maril, who was engaged in the same process, which was trying to build up and hold the fort uh, against against the forces of internal um, decay and uh, Mishagas that uh, was raging in Germany among the German Jews because it was post-Holocaust and all the normal Gedolim had died. And, um, uh, you know, people didn't know what to do. And you had the problem, as they say before, of lousy rabbis uh, who A, didn't know much and B, had bad character. And he's fighting against it to try to raise the level of the rabbinate. He tried to teach as many students as he could who were first raiders, you know, but it's always a, a tricky business to get your guy in in, in in place of somebody else when somebody already has a fellow, even if they're no good. I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, but you have to just take my word for it. One of the most famous... So, let, let, before I proceed, so by the time he died, he left uh, about 150, chubas, something like that. Uh, and uh, his son, eventually they got published. And they became classics. So he, Marie Wall is one of the classic guys of the Charles and Chubas literature. And that's all we have from him. Okay? Uh, if we didn't, we wouldn't be missing out a lot. Now, he also wrote, by the way, um, uh, a, a guide for a shochtim, a shochet abodek, you know? Uh, that's in the end of his, uh, they always appended to his sefer. And that was used uh, all by Ashkenazi Jews for many years. Now they use based oven and things like that. But for hundreds of years, People to, in Germany and, you know, Bohemian Central Europe, if you wanted to get Kabbalah, you had to learn this safer, which is very simple and short and to the point. You get it? Gives you the rules of being a Shekhar and Bodik. Uh, so, you know, and that's who he was. He he must have grown up, looked around at Kashrus at that time, talking in terms of Shkit, and said, Ay, they, because, as I say before, in the aftermath of the uh, massacres, the rabbinate fell down to the ground. It was a low level. The shechita was of low level. You know, people didn't know. They didn't know what the knives. They did a lot of mistakes. It's the old question of don't look and don't ask. But his attitude was, we've got to fix it best we can. And so a major part of his life is trying to write to communities who were sending him shalos about minhagim. And it's very interesting. It would take me hours to do this. It's a, you could do a series. I, I'm serious. You could do a series on the Yaka Wild. Because... He has so many cases in which they say, we have an argument in our town over what the minig is, and, you know, he always says, don't do the wrong minig, otherwise it's the backwards Gehenna, it's minig, the same uh, gematria. And he'll say, let me see what it is, here's what, what it really should be, or let me work from the Gemara down, and uh, your minig should be changed or uh, eliminated, or alternatively, your minig is a sound minig, even though some of you are thinking it's not. And he became like the expert in the minhagah. What I'm trying to get at is, when we talk about today, Yekishim and Hagim and things like that, where do they come from? And the answer is, a lot of them come from the late 1300s and the 1400s, from these guys, like the Maril, Amar Mariwal and Maril, who undertook to investigate and to, um, what's the right word, reform and uh, crystallize the proper Min Hagim. And uh, they're, these guys, there are like three or four of them. There's the Maril, there's the Mariwal, there's the... Uh, Isaac Turnow, you know, there's a couple of, of, of famous people like this. And uh, because their stuff was good and it got published, the German communities, each one in its own way, adopted this part of that part. And then we came to the world of Yetzirah and Hagen. Uh In the 1500s, a lot of these ideas from some of these people got into uh, uh, Poland. That's the Ramah. 
in uh, the Shulchan Aruch, uh, when he gets to, uh, especially Ashkenazim and Hagim, uh, you'll see very much, if you look in the, in, in the Shulchan Aruch, he very often will quote, I mean a lot, he'll quote from the Maril and Mariwal and a few others. You understand? Uh, because he said, I guess these guys went through the Minhagim. So it, again, to use American terminology, we're not sure what the meaning was. They asked her Moshe Feinstein. He said to do this way, and he he examined it, and this is what he came up with. So he said, "Oh, okay, you know." If he looked it over and he examined it, and he recommends to do such and such, then that's it. And that became the attitude of the Ashkenazi Jews. So, Lamaisa, in your life and my life, we often are influenced by the chuvas of the Mariwal, Mariyakawal, but you don't know it because you think it's a Ramah. You understand? In other words, a lot of what we do comes from Ramah, obviously. But if you ever take the study to read the parentheses, which obviously most people don't, in the Ramah, you know what I'm talking about, even though those parentheses weren't in the original Ramah, but nevertheless, they're accurate. Uh, you'll see a fair amount of times Rabbi Yaakawal and the Maril. I mean, a lot, okay? And uh, that's just interesting. Now, I told you before, he's always fighting against corrupt rabbis. One of his most famous tubas is the idea of, uh, which is as follows. These uh, rabbis in Germany, uh, a lot of them were lowlifes, and therefore they were looking for opportunity to make money. And a guy would come in town and say, I guess I'm a Talmud Chacham. Compared to you, I am, right? I'm a Talmud Chacham. And the Talmud Chacham is entitled to special privileges according to the Gemara, which is true. And a Talmud Chacham, basically, I have the right to insult you, you can't insult me back. You have to give me special privileges in business and things like that. The local Balabatim said, who came with that? And he said, well, you're a bunch of dummies. It's straight in the Gemara, and you have to give it to me. And uh, especially, you, I know the type. You know the type. And this guy would come and insult somebody. If the guy would insult him back, then he said, you insulted a Talmud Chacham, which I am, and you're not, and therefore you owe me, uh, you know, what should I say, $500 or $800. The literature shows off, which is uh, what they, was a, a case in the Gemara. Uh, now, I remind you, the situation got in such a degree that unscrupulous rabbis would in purpose provoke Balabat and get angry at them so then they could take him base and hit him with the, with the fine. You get it? So it became like, you don't want to run into these guys. It's like a mashalach, you know? You see them coming down the street, you run the other way. It was terrible. And he's the one who issued the Pesach, where he said, well, there's no Talmud Chacham today. With the Talmud Talmud Gemara, we don't have today in the 15th century. A rabbi today is not a Talmud Chacham. And that's, by the way, in the, uh, in the Shulchan Aruch. I just pulled it out just for fun. You know, there are rules in uh, Yerodea called how you have to treat a Talmud Chacham as a class. And uh, they're, they're kind of funny. Um, but that's how it goes. Now, uh, just off the top over here, in Reish Mem Gimel 243, it says me. It's all from the Gemara originally, you know. Me shehidu alav shabiza talmid chachamim. If they say the guy was mevaza talmid chacham insulted him, I feel the one shul b'fanav even not in his presence. Beizim menad no so then beizim has to put the guy in the cherem. Beim aturnus hashoras but shouldn't he do b'fanav? And he can't. They don't release him from the cherem unless he makes up with the guy, which implies it'll have to pay a, a, a fine. Beim biza chacham lachem moso, and if he insulted a talmid chacham after the talmid chacham was dead. Then uh, you know they wait till he does too, but they put him in the chirim. But the Ramah says, okay, "Avol ein din talmud chacham b'zman hazeh leinian sheyitin lo hamavayish liter de dava." 
that we don't have today, a Tamil Chacham, like the Gemara's time, that if you insulted him, you have to give him a, a litra, you know, a, a chunk of gold, you know, like I say $500, $800, something like that. What's the source? Mahariv Simon Kosamach Gimel. Notice if you look in the response of collection, which was eventually published by Marie Weil, by Yaakov Weil, by his uh, great-grandchildren, I mean, to, in printing press, you'll see over there, he's the one that says this, and he backs it up. It's actually written in English, if those are interested in the Freehoff book. And uh, although, I, I, just for fun, I'll finish this Ramah. But still, the Ramah says, you should punish the guy in some level, based on the, you know, who he was insulted. Provided the Talmud Chacham didn't deliberately uh, provoke the argument in order to get the money. That's from the Mariwal. That's the type of people he dealt with. But even so, if the Talmud Chacham, even the Talmud Chacham provoked you, you shouldn't answer him back in a chutzpah take away. It's a, it's an interesting uh, kind of topic. Now, uh, as I said before, if you go through the Chuvas Mariwal, which will take very long, uh, you find a lot of interesting history uh, situations over there. Um, it's uh, famous for this. Uh, and you also find, by the way, in the form of his contemporaries, there's a Trumas Adeshin who was a friend of his and was a little younger and looked up to him. And the Trumas Adeshin has a case. I'm related to Trumas Adeshin. And Trumas Adeshin has a case in Ulm in Germany uh, where uh, the local ruler confiscated the synagogue and turned into a church. Uh, but then the, the, the next, the ruler's son, who when he became the duke, he had charata, and he said, I want to give it back to the Jews for a shoal. There's a question like this, a place used for a church, can't use it for a shoal. That's a very tricky uh, type of issue. And uh, you look, the Truman's edition, so I guess, go ask the Yaakov while in Erfurt. He knows, he, he's, he's, he's the, he's, he'll give you the answer on that. He's the one who knows. Uh, and that's pretty interesting, the Truman's edition would say, you know, you have a shallow, go to him. Um, you also find, as I say before, that uh, he is, going against people to start machlokas. There are a whole bunch of these tubas in which he blasts, oh boy, he gives them help to people who own, who are the Korachs of their town. And oh, they're, they're long tubas. And he says, if you don't do repentance, and I'm not scared of you, you know, I know you threatening your local rabbi, you kill him. Um, kill me, take your best shot. I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to hold up the cause of the truth. You understand? And you stink. And you better do tuba or else. And... Uh, you also see, uh, <laughs> there's there's a, a famous case where uh, a shaykhet missed the sircha, they were going to fire him, and uh, you know, and he explained that you don't have to fire him for that. He saved the guy's parnasa. Let's put it that way, you know. And uh, well, what what can I tell you? You know, you find these cases one after another. Um, so when you put this all together, what you see is a person who um, represents a kind of indomitable spirit. Here in the 15th century, life stinks, the antisemitism is growing, many Jews have been killed, and by the way, there were other um, massacres, besides what I talked about in the 1300s. The Ryakawal lived in the first half of the 1400s. Uh, during his time, the entire Jewish community in Vienna was burned. 
uh, what they called the Xeris Vin in 1421, uh, not far from where he lived, uh, on some baloney excuse. Uh, I myself was uh, not that long ago in Vienna with a group, you know, uh, one of my tours. And you can go see the place where they burned everybody, you know, <clears throat> which was the Ars Rochel originally. So life was really tough. You know, anti-Semitism anti was terrible. In the midst of it all, you do your best. Um, in the midst of all, what can you do? You can go, Ay vey, woe is me. Or you can say like this, the only proper response is to um, build up as much Torah knowledge as possible. Uh, as I say before, sound knowledge. Uh, again, a very famous uh, statement of Mariwal often quoted is, you don't use lambdas when you're paskin gashayla, and he was talking about the lambdas of his time, which was crazy. You know, with the with the classic pilpul, you have no idea what it's a, how uh, com, how complex it was, twisted it was. But he's saying like this: what you do in the lambdas shizman is one thing. When you come to a shayla, you paskin it straight from the sources. You get it? We 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 don't mish, as it were. It's a very famous a statement of his, often quoted, and it goes to the, you know who he was. He knew how to give all the fancy lambdas, and I'm sure he did. But you won't find it because all that survives are his shilas and his little halachic treatises, which are the opposite of pilpalistic. They're very, very straightforward. You know, yakish in the best sense of the word. You know, here's the makoras, here's a you're coming from the Gemara, or, you know, something like that. Uh, and by the way, super Ashkenazi, never heard of any Spartan besides the Rambam and the Rif, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to find that stuff in there. All the. Ashkenazi uh, type uh, sources, which tells you what we don't need any outside thing. You don't need quote unquote the Rishonim. We have our own. He, he, you know, as I told you before, he comes from a minhag of the Maril that survived the massacre, so they still held on to the old knowledge. Okay, the Merbiakawal was a great great grandson of the somehow or other of the Marmrottenberg, which is interesting. And you know, these are the guys holding the tradition up in a time of absolute chaos. And they saved the Menegashkenaz. Okay? These are the guys who saved the Menegashkenaz. And uh, ironically, it was in Poland that it got really coined and spread through the vehicle of the uh, of the Ramo. Okay? Even though the Ramo didn't do exactly the Western Menegashkenaz, but he took a lot from the Shalas and Shubas of the Ramo. You can see that. And it goes to... Well, I said it wrong. He took a lot from the Shalas and Shubas of the Mariwal, and also from the Shalatus of the Trumas Adesh and the Maril. So these are the great rabbis of the 15th century. I was in Florida a couple months ago at Scotland Residence in Boca, I guess. And uh, in the Young Israel there, I think it was. And uh, Rabbi Rabovsky show. And I remember the, the title was the, the 15th century and the 20th century. And my thesis was that a lot of the rulings of the 15th century end up being very nogea to us today and live in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, because Ryakawal has a lot to do with a goodness, as you can imagine, and, you know, all kind of, uh, you know, Yosoma's tough situations as a result of the terrible anti-Semitism. People have no idea how bad the Germans were in the 14th and 15th century. I'm not talking about Hitler, right? The 14th, 15th century. And uh, they're just totally disgusting. What are you going to do? Uh, I'll tell you, I'll finish, just to give you a, a, a little taste of what I'm talking about. 
uh, the Jews in Brandenburg and Berlin, where were like uh, 20, 30 Jews were killed in the early 1500s for Alil Esdam, you know, that they, uh, that they killed a, a, a girl, the youth from Matzah. And uh, they burned at the stake. And um, fine, happened. The actual guy who killed the girl later confessed to his Catholic priest, I did it. The Catholic priest was bothered by this, and he went to the bishop. The bishop said, shut up, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about this. Let, let, let it go. So that means they're, they're sanctioning the murder of the Jews. It happens to be that the Talmud Muvig of Martin Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who hated Jews, but was anti-Catholic, he gave a speech in front of a bunch of big church dignitaries, and he said, you want to know how corrupt the Catholic Church is? They burned these Jews. The guy told the priest, the priest told the bishop, the bishop said, suppress it. I happen to find out it shows you how bad the Catholic Church is. Meaning he didn't do it to help the Jews, but Derek Agav, you see the type of situation the Jews were living under. So where the Ma- Marie Weil was in Erfurt, Erfurt, uh, he died, like I say, in 14, uh, middle 1450s. Right around that time, a little bit after him, came two preachers, like oh, Farrakhan, uh, John Capistrano was one of them, and they gave a whole bunch of speeches against the Jews, and you couldn't shut them up, and, uh, you know, it's like the internet, and uh, as a result, the Jews were kicked out of Erfurt or killed. So, I mean, this is the life that was lived at that time. So we really have to uh, keep this in mind when you read these uh, famous Rabbanim, like the Truma Sedeshin, like the Mariel, like Mariwal, and like the Mariwal's famous student, Rabbi Yisrael Bruna, Rabbi Yisrael Brun, you realize these are people that really uh, plugged away in very, very difficult circumstances. We who live in a much better environment today don't appreciate the privations uh, and how tough life was for Jews in many situations uh, of the past. Um, so if you're interested in old Ashkenaz Jewry, if you, and if you have any inclination to read interesting chubas, very interesting, the, the, the questions are always very life, in, you know, all, all kind of situations of life, and you understand the histor- excuse me, the historical circumstances I just described, you would uh, be interesting to take a look at the Chubas Mariwal. They were republished uh, X number of years ago in, uh, I have one volume, uh, you know, from that Machon Mifel Teres Chach I guess. It's, uh, it's, it's from the Machon Yerushalayim. And it came out in 2001, I guess, 2002. And it's in, in a nice edition. It's called Shubas Mariwal, Chelek Alf. Really, that's the whole Chubas. You know, the other things are that Shelchit book and things like that. And uh, I really would recommend it for people that are interested in, 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 in that sort of uh, uh, knowledge. Uh, and the Shalatubes is, is sort of best in its way. Anyway, with that, I bid you a good day.